7 o'clock, right here. Uh, a few of you may have experienced over in the refrigerator uh, some cracked eggs the last week or two, or in the, before this week. Um, when we had zero temperature, I don't know whether a few of those may have frozen in the nest since we were gathering in the morning uh, and uh, may have cracked. Or I discovered on checking the refrigerator, it somehow got turned down just about as low as it could go. And I think that I think what actually happened is they were freezing in the refrigerator, so some of the had little hairline cracks in the shells. So if you had some and had difficulty with that, feel free to replace them. Uh, I say that because there's only one dozen last yesterday afternoon, but there's probably another. 12 dozen or so that will be in there either late tonight or in the morning. Uh, we have lots of eggs now. But if you experienced that and, and feared those, it was, it was from freezing. So I turned the refrigerator back to a more normal setting. Uh, this isn't coming up until the 11th, a week from, two weeks from today. But we have the fast of the 10th month coming up, which will be Sabbath, the 11th of January. And uh, you may recall that that was, began to be observed because that was the day that Nebuchadnezzar started the siege on Jerusalem, but later ended in the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and Gedaliah being died, or dying, and then uh, Israel going into the captivity of Babylon with the other fasts through the year. So... The tenth day of the tenth month, which comes to January 11th, uh, commemorates the beginning of that uh, siege and destruction. Uh, it's interesting the parallel that Herbert Armstrong died in January of 86, and that's when the siege on the truth and the siege on the church began in earnest when the Takachas took over. So... Uh, even though we're talking in some respects of ancient history, uh, still in all, uh, it has its counterpart today, like everything else we've discovered in the Bible, that it's all written way back there, and God knew exactly what was going to happen and how it would happen and when. He is very precise. Sometimes we get a little frustrated thinking things aren't happening when we would like them to, but we need to understand who is in charge and I might do things in a wrong way early, and you might too. And yet God knows his whole plan, his whole purpose, and his timing is always precise. He knows exactly what he's doing. So we need to bear that in mind. Uh, also realize that within his mind and emotions and heart, he is also able and willing at times to cut things short, which he says he will do at the end, lest no flesh be saved alive. And as I've expressed before, he has told us there in Isaiah not to give him any rest until he brings these things about, and that he will before the flesh fails before him. Uh, so this generation that he worked with from Herbert Armstrong down to now will not die out till these things happen nor will we here die out before these things happen. So, uh, he knows what he's doing, but he does leave some wiggle room in there for speeding things up or cutting them short if we do our part. So, if we begin to get frustrated and impatient, we need to understand that God is precise and knows precisely what he has in mind, and yet... Through the Bible, we see places where man has prevailed upon God to change certain things. So it is not that he cannot be entreated, cannot be beseeched, and sometimes give relief. So let's bear those things in mind, and also that we have another uh, siege against the temple that will occur once we begin building the last temple, the latter temple, as Haggai and Zechariah describe it, there will come a time when they will bring a siege against it as well. And we'll take it over and set up the abomination of desolation. So, 
what has happened way in the past, what has happened in the recent past, and what will be experienced in the future are all tied up in the last siege that will come upon the church, the temple of God, and Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem. So these things are all being repeated, and that's why God put them in there as the fast of the month in Zechariah, uh, and put them there for us to keep so that we would remember not just the past, but what the past poses for the future. Because the past means nothing if we don't learn from it. Uh, so that's coming up two weeks from today on the 11th, the past of the 10th month. So with that, I wanted to let you know ahead of time, even though it's probably on your calendar, uh, but to remind us that it is coming and to be prepared and ready to fast on that day. Now let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. We came down to chapter 25. I'm going to do my utmost to get through three chapters today. There isn't a lot in here that I want to make uh, uh, long comments on. Uh, so we'll try to get through it because uh, when I do get back to it, I'd like to address Deuteronomy 28 uh, shortly because it is a very, very important chapter in terms of the immediate future of this nation and of the church as well. Uh, we're still in 25, 6, and 7, a preparation leading up to that, which is kind of the climax, if you will, of the book of Deuteronomy. But these are still dealing with how we should deal with one another, uh, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and some of the things that God laid down that indicate and help explain how we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as you saw, or as we covered, and I'm sure you already had some knowledge of that and, and have enough spiritual acumen that you can go back and read these scriptures and translate it into spiritual terms for today, but I spent, spent quite a little time on that last, the last couple of weeks to help us maybe see more clearly how to take these physical examples back here and translate them to New Testament procedure and how they can be applied in our lives today. So let's pick it up in 25 and go on. It says, If there be a controversy between men, and they come to judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. No room for false judgment is allowed here. Uh, they were to determine who was right and who was wrong and make the judgment accordingly. Maybe a good example would have been Solomon with the two women with the child. And he says, oh, I see the answer to that. Let's just cut the child in half and give half to each woman. And uh, immediately the mother said, no, give it to her. And the other one said, cut it in half. Because she was vengeful and spiteful. And what incredible wisdom that man had to come up with that solution. Um, and found out who the real mother was in a hurry. The one who wanted to be sure the child lived. Even if she didn't have it. So judgments had to be done correctly. And notice again the issue of government here. Uh, there were judges in the land. The priests and judges that were appointed like under Moses who were to make those judgments, they weren't to be by vote of the congregation or democracy. You will never find democracy in the Word of God. It just is not a godly form of government. Now, in our nation, it's worked to some degree relatively well, better than some other types of government, but it is quickly around us falling apart as well. Because men simply cannot, in and of themselves, rule themselves. And that is one of the main things that God is trying to get across to us in this first 6,000 years of man's history. Is that, is that, apart from God, trying to rule ourselves, we will utterly fail. The first quasi-democracies in the past, pick Rome, uh, Greece, whatever, what they call the roots of democracy, failed, just as our nation is failing as well. But in spite of all the checks and balances with the three different 
venues of power within our government that were supposed to be checks and balances on each other. Uh, they've gotten out of kilter, uh, out of whack, and now we are headed very quickly into tyranny and away from democracy. In fact, it's already here, basically. So, man cannot rule himself. And we will have that absolutely, utterly proved by the time Christ returns. Uh, they'll try their last one satanic, one world order, the beast power, that the book of Revelation says all men will worship, and it will fail. Men will try to put together one last attempt, and it will be a dictatorial thing, as Satan is, uh, mimicking, uh, counterfeiting the government of God, but from a wrong standpoint and a wrong perspective with the unrighteous in control. Now, when the Father and the Son come at the beginning of the millennium, it will again be uh, ruled from the top down, uh, that's the only thing that does work, but you will have righteousness at the top. And the best we can do today is to take those principles, live them the best we can, falling short, because we are not the Father and the Son, we're still men, all of us. And we, none of us, can live up to the full standard of what Christ was. It's a goal, it's a purpose, it's a desire within us, it's something we work at daily, but which we fall short of. I do, you do, we all do. We need to be very careful about being judgmental and condemning one another when any one of us might seem to fall short, because we all do. It's funny how human beings are. We know we fall short, but if somebody else does, uh, we have an attitude toward them, Rather than recognizing perhaps our own weakness, uh, we want them to live the standard whether we can or not. So that's where a lot of the problems we have among ourselves come from. But the judgment was there. It was to be applied and to do as much very carefully as they could to be sure to uh, reward the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault, by a certain number. There were certain sins, crimes, that uh, brought the death penalty uh, through stoning. Uh, there were others which required beating. And the judge could determine, based on the offense, how many stripes to give. 5, 10, 15, 20, but as we see here, verse 3, 40 stripes he may give him and not exceed. Lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then your brother should seem vile to you. In other words, all human dignity would be removed. The maximum was 40, and if you went beyond that, it was beyond the standard. It was beyond any kind of mercy it was then uh, unconstitutional, if you will, and there could be no respect left. Now, if a man did need 40 and was given 40, that was the limit. They couldn't beat him to death. That wasn't the penalty. But it could only go to a certain point and not exceed that. You shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn, uh, this was perhaps stated as a way to be sure our animals are well taken care of, not mistreated, not starved half to death. Uh, the oxen tread, treaded the corn, ground it, uh, and so on, or, or knocked it off the ears or, or off the sheep. They had different things they had the animals do, a working animal in other words. So they weren't to put a muzzle on them when they were working in the corn. They could reach down and get a mouthful and slobber on the rest whenever they wanted. Uh, <laughs> but also they, they dropped manure in it too as they went around. 
So you had those things to deal with, but I guess it was worth it to have the oxen doing the work and then wash the grain uh, was preferable to treading it out or winnowing it all yourself. But they were not to muzzle that ox that treaded out the corn, but they were to take care of those animals. Now, to understand the spiritual principle involved, and probably there are many, I mean, I can't cover all the spiritual things that we could translate these to, but 1 Corinthians 9, 9, and 1 Timothy, uh, what, I barely read my margin here, 3, 18, I guess it is. Uh, Paul used this to show that when the ministry was working among the people, that they were not to be muzzled, that they were to eat of the gospel. He mentioned that several times, but he used this example as a spiritual example of church administration, that those who worked in the gospel were to eat of the gospel and to be paid accordingly, especially those that worked in uh, the Word of God. So we have a, a very real New Testament example of how things can be taken from a purely physical uh, context and added to the church as a spiritual uh, thing to be considered. Verse 5, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Uh, this is given, and it, it may seem strange to us, but the family was very, very important then. And God had told them that they would, that Israel ultimately would be as the sands of the sea and as the stars of heaven. So, providing a family line to carry Israel forward was very, very important to them, and having children, and lots of children, was important as well. So, if a man died, disease, war, accident, whatever, uh, God provided that uh, a brother could take his, or should, take his wife as his own to be sure that seed was carried on or that family line did not die out. Uh, and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother to her, and it shall be, verse 6, that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So if the man that died's name was Tom, and uh, the brother that married her then was named Andy, that child was kept the name of Tom, not Andy, even though it was actually his seed. <coughs> but that kept the line, the family line going. And if the man liked not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up to his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now, this may seem strange in our society today, because uh, if a woman married into a family and her husband died early for whatever cause, she might not want to marry any of the brothers in the family. And I don't know that this is a physical thing that has to be carried forward because the brothers might not be anything she would like or want to be involved with. But this was done in ancient Israel to keep a family line going, and perhaps the importance of that is not quite as real today as it was then. But let's understand, too, that God wants his family line continued. He works very hard to convert a few people to become the bride of Christ, and for them to have children then, perhaps throughout eternity, to keep the family line going. So it's very important to God. He is all about family. And he includes us, of course, as a spiritual organism, as family. 1 Corinthians 12 
and other scriptures show that, that we are all a family together, a body, if you will, but joined together to do something for God's purposes. And it is important to him. Uh, let's see, if, if he refuses her, verse 9, Then shall his brother's wife come to him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done to that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that has his shoe loosed. <laughs> Interesting thing. But uh, how does the family walk forward uh, without shoes? I don't know why this expression in particular was used, but perhaps that has something to do with it. That they were not willing to march forward in the accepted manner, or that man wasn't. And there is a case where a man refused. He went ahead and decided he would have a relationship with the woman, but he spilled the seed on the ground. So even though he was willing to sleep with her, he was not willing to let her have a child. And God took great exception to that. Uh, he didn't even have the honor to say, no, I just refuse you, but he was willing to, to take her and humble her, but not let her have a child in his brother's name. He needed to be beat with the shoe. My comment, not scripture. Anyway, verse 11. When men strive together, one with another, and the wife of the one draws near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smites him, and puts forth her hand and takes him by the secrets, then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall not pity her. Interesting thing. It didn't say she couldn't intervene in the fight, but she couldn't take him by the private parts. Now, perhaps this had something to do as well with the fact that modesty is the hedge to chastity. Uh, also, that is the part of the male that generates children and has to do with the family. So, for whatever reasons, and those may be some of them, uh, God would not allow her to attack that particular part of the body. It was unfair advantage in one sense, and it had to do with the generations, which we saw in the example above is very important, that the name be carried on. And if she were to wound him in that area where he couldn't have children, uh, that would not fit with God's purposes. Didn't say she couldn't hit him over the head. Uh, she was probably free to do that and intervene in behalf of her husband. But on the other hand, that particular area was forbidden. Why do we call it private? Uh, but that's pretty, pretty severe. She had to have her hand cut off. Verse 13, You shall not have in your bag different weights, a great and a small. You shall not have in your houses different measures, a great and a small. But you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just matter shall you have. So, if you were a trader, you couldn't carry, let's say, one pound measures and then have one that weighed an ounce less that you snuck up there uh, when you were selling them corn or beef or whatever. Uh, you couldn't do that. It had to be a just weight and measure. So if you measured it out, it had to be right. There are the old stories about how often a butcher's thumb gets weighed. He puts your meat on the scale and then he applies a little more pressure with the thumb and you look and think that's how much meat you got. But you probably didn't really want to eat his son, and he didn't include it in the package anyway. He took it off, and you got cheated. So God didn't allow those things to happen. And yet, we distrust certain people who have opportunity to misweigh or miscalculate things, don't we? And they have many, many ways in our society today to cheat us or to raise the price without us knowing it. Just like now that inflation is occurring much more rapidly than the government will admit, 
Uh, instead of a one-pound package, you have a 15-ounce package. Or at least the net weight is that. The package may be the same, but it doesn't have as much in it. So they have all different kinds of ways of hiding and making a greater profit. God said that was not to be done. You'll notice on the meat that we've provided that's organic beef and so on uh, for you in the fridge, that on there I put so much per package because they don't weigh that out. It's not something sold commercially. They don't weigh it out. They estimate it. So some packages will have a little less than a pound and some will have a little more than a pound. They just, you know, pull it off the pile and put about a pound there. So they don't weigh it. Uh, so I'm not telling you that that's a pound. It's a package that is approximately plus or minus. We do that with acreage. Plus or minus 10 acres, you know, is the way they advertise land in case it's not exact. Uh, but if it were represented as a full pound, then it needs to be weighed out carefully to be sure that is done. And if we were selling something commercially, we would have to do that, of course. But this is something that's kind of done for us that we don't have control over, so we put it that way. And naturally, you take the biggest one you see and leave the smaller one for your neighbor. I say that partly in jest, but don't we like to get all we can for our money? Certainly we do. The thing is, probably pretty soon all the big ones will be gone and the little ones will be left. And that's, that comes back around. What goes around comes around. We all have to have the small one then. Anyway... This is the principle here, is to be sure that no one is cheated but is taken care of. doesn't mean you can't make profit, but they had a set price for uh, a bushel of wheat or whatever, uh, whatever it might be, and that was what it was. <coughs> so your production didn't necessarily come from raising the price or diminishing the amount in the bushel, it came by hard work and how many bushels you could produce. So you see, your effort and your labor and your care in doing what you're doing is where you profited, not in cheating on how much was in the basket uh, or that type of thing or how you weighed it out. And this is a... Uh, a statute that had promise. He says, if you do things in a just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the eternal your God gives you. So he said, if you do things justly, correctly, uh, you'll live long in the land God gives you. If you cheat, lie, steal, and all those things, uh, your term there will be short-lived. Whether God taking you into captivity again, or whether your neighbor uh, turning you into the judges, or whatever. But your, your life would not be as you would wish it was. Verse 16, For all that do such things, and all that do unrighteously, are an abomination to the eternal your God. So, being fair, doing things right, is a basis for righteousness and holiness. Doing things in a wrong fashion is an abomination. So that is easily applied uh, with us today, whether it's buying and selling physical things or whether it's in terms of spiritual concern and care for one another. Verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you by the way, or as you were traveling, when you were come forth out of Mitzrayim. How he met you by the way, and smote the hindmost of you, even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the eternal your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about, in the land which the eternal your God gives you, for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. Amalek followed behind and picked off the weak. Now, how many scriptures does God give us about how we're to take care of the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, so on? 
and those who are less fortunate within society. To be sure, they are taken care of. That's all through the prophecies. It's back through the law. Wherever you go in the Bible, and Christ himself in the New Testament, was very careful to be sure that those people were considered. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's in there uh, to show mercy and help for those who were less fortunate in many ways. What about the story of the, uh, the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, and so on, and taking care of those who had need? God is very concerned about that. So he would be very irate in Amalek if they were picking on the weak at the back of the columns, those who couldn't keep up. So he said they were to be absolutely destroyed, none left alive. And he says, when you go into the land, I want you to remember this and not forget it, because it would be easy to start building and doing and, and your own society and then forget that Amalek was to be destroyed. But God wanted them removed from under heaven because they took care, or took, did not take care of, but took advantage of those who were old or crippled or, or for some reason or another couldn't keep up. Uh, that's about as low as you can get, isn't it? Really? To take advantage of those who are helpless, who have no way of taking care of themselves, God doesn't like that at all. So he makes quite a little to do. Isaiah 58 is a good example. Those who give what they have to take care of others will be the healers of the breach. They will be the ones God uses because this world is going to be disadvantaged and those who live through are going to be in very, very poor condition physically uh, and mentally, emotionally, and in every way. And God is going to provide people who are willing to take care of the needy, his bride, the bride of Christ, who will be there to serve them, to help them, to bring them along, to strengthen them. And we have been called upon to do that when God gathers his remnant together. He sent us here ahead of time to prepare a way, to prepare a place, so that when he does it, they can be taken care of because they're going to come from all over the world and they're going to be disadvantaged. They're going to be have been in trouble. And they'll flee before the coming beast power. Read Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 50. When the power of the north starts coming against this Babylon, our nation, they will flee to Zion saying, How do you get to Zion? They will be refugees needing care. So we are here to learn to care for each other and for those who have needs and to be in the, in the attitude of mind to take care of those who have need because they will be here and lots of them. Same in the millennium. But God doesn't like it if we are callous and hard and selfish and greedy and unwilling to share what we have. So he makes that very plain here. <laughs> he has had no respect, no desire to Amalek because of what they did to the weak and the helpless. Going on to chapter 26 then. And it shall be when you are come into the land which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance and possess it and dwell therein. And we're on the verge of that again. God has shown us where Zion is, where the promised land is. I think where Jerusalem was and shall be. And we will be given opportunity to go in and possess that area and to build in it. Things will have to change before that is possible because of the control that is held over it at this time. But God will do that and says he will protect while we do that work. So we are at the cusp of going into that land to do that work that Israel was when Moses uh, gave them a summary just before Joshua was to lead them in. So when this happens, verse 2, that you shall take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which you shall bring of your land that the eternal your God gives you, and shall put it in a basket, 
and shall go to the place which the eternal your God shall choose to place his name there. Ultimately, that place was Jerusalem. That's where he chose to place his name. There are many scriptures that indicate that. So it was to be put in a basket, the kind of first fruits. It wasn't a tithe, those that is covered in other areas. It wasn't an offering, a traditional offering. Uh, that's covered in other scriptures. But this was to be put in a basket. So it wasn't a great amount of anything, but it was the first. That which came out first. Verse 3, And you shall go to the priests that shall be in those days. Uh, there was order again. There was government. The priest was there, and you were to take it to the priest and say to him, I profess this day to the Eternal your God that I am come into the country which the Eternal swore to our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Eternal your God. And you shall speak and say before the Eternal your God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, Jacob, who was in a far land, and he went down into Mitzrayim and sojourned there with a few, seventy, and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the, the Mitzrayimites evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried to the eternal God of our fathers, the eternal heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Eternal brought us forth out of Mitzrayim with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with great terribleness, and with signs, and with wonders. He's going to do the same thing again. Do we understand that? Read uh, Zechariah 3. He talks about men of some wonders here at the end that will be connected with the end-time work. But those things will understand where God is working. So we have those things to look forward to, and Jeremiah tells us that what God does to deliver us here in the end is going to be even greater than when they came out of Mitzrayim under Moses and away from Pharaoh. But he here institutes something that was to be a reminder every year of what God had done for them. Lest they forget, lest we come here and forget what we're here for and the purpose that is ahead of us and lay down and get lackadaisical or half-hearted or lay to sin, self-righteous, and begin to fight with one another. It is, because when you get there, always remember what God has done for you. Well, he doesn't want us to forget either the things he is doing. I am more thankful day by day when I read what is going on in this world and in this country that God has already brought us, a few of us, out of the cities, has brought us out into the country where it is safer and will be safer, uh, and into that specific part of the country that will be protected by God. Because even being in the country isn't going to save you uh, unless you have God's protection when this all comes down. You, even though if you went and hid in the rocks, you will not be safe there. Let's remember who it is that is working with us, that has opened our minds to the things that we know and understand today. It is God who did it. We cannot afford to turn our back on what God has done and what he has revealed. So God did deliver them, and he promises us throughout all the prophecies of the Bible that he is going to do the same thing again. He is. We only have to do our part and serve him with all our heart, and then he will use us to help turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and usher in, <coughs> help usher in the kingdom of God and be prepared to help Christ rule the earth as kings and priests. Anyway, uh, verse 8, And the Eternal brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm of and with signs and wonders. I read that. <laughs> and he has brought us into this place and has given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. And it will again, Isaiah tells us, 
that it will be as, the, as Eden, as the garden of God. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which, eternal, which you, O Eternal, have given me, and you shall set it before the Eternal your God, and worship before the Eternal your God. So they were to take that basket of the first of the harvest, bring it to the priest, and then they were to say this before God and the priest, to remember what God had done. You know how fast people forget what God has done? We forget very, very quickly. Medical issues are one of those. There was a time I can remember in the church when there were no ministers around. There were very few local congregations. We could call Pasadena and ask for an anointed cloth, and sometimes the healing would come immediately or by the time the cloth got there. I remember those things from my childhood, and they continued. Just recently, I had a woman call me who was hurting very badly and was in crying, screaming agony all night long with her feet. She didn't want to call too early. I chided her a bit for that. But she waited until a reasonable hour of the morning and called. And as soon as she called, the pain stopped completely. And it's been gone ever since. How fast will we forget that? I had another example this week which I think I'll relate, because these things can be encouraging to us. But there was an individual who was taking care of an elderly lady, and as I remember the story, I might not have all the details exactly correct, but I think they had the bed, the hospital bed, in the living room of the woman's house, and uh, took care of her there. Perhaps it was easier than the bedroom, but I think it was the living room. In any case... Uh, our member was on shift, and it was time for a shift change. They kept take, took care of this woman for 24 sevens, five different people alternating uh, shifts. And normally when the new shift would come on, the two ladies would go in and change the bed and so on, since there were two of them, it made it easier to handle the elderly lady. Well, this time, instead of immediately going in to change the bed... They stopped in the kitchen to exchange notes and confer a little bit. In other words, they were delayed in going in there. Well, while they were in the kitchen talking, uh, I guess the, the roof had been leaking and leaked down on the drywall ceiling, saturated it with water and ice probably, I don't know, and the sides of the old lady's bed were up. And right at that moment, the drywall fell. Not half inch, but the, the old five-eighths inch they used to use. Saturated with water, which would have been very, very heavy. Fell right on the lady's bed. But the sides of the bed kept it from hitting her and killing her. If the two women had not stopped to talk, they would have been in there. The sides of the bed would have been down. And they would have all three been hit with the falling drywall didn't happen. Is there a God or is there not? And this individual thought her job was over because uh, the people in charge, the family, decided to move her to a nursing home. So, I guess there goes my income. No. The nephews who were in charge told the five workers that they wanted the 24-7 uh, care of their aunt in the nursing home. So the nursing home personnel did the heavy work. <laughs> they basically were there just to give moral and emotional support and get and got a dollar an hour raise for so doing. Now that's just this week. There is still a God, brethren, and He still does look after us. And we need to keep that in mind it's easy to get discouraged, it's easy to get frustrated, it's easy to 
lose patience. But God is still there. He has not forgotten us. He is still working with us. Now, he may be doing that with other people in other places, too. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we're special above anybody else. But I am saying God is still here. And I know the pain in the legs, because I've worked with that situation for years. I know that was a miracle from Almighty God. There is no doubt in my mind about that. Let us not forget. That's what this basket of first fruits is about. Verse 11, And you shall rejoice in every good thing which the eternal your God has given to you, and to your house, you and the Levite, and the stranger that is among you. Now, he just indicted Amalek for taking advantage, and now he's saying, be thankful for what God has given you, and take care of those who have need as well. Verse 12, he reiterates that, or uh, emphasizes it. When you have made an end of tithing of all the tithes of your increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, now we know from other scriptures that uh, they were to take year by year, a tithe and give God's tithe to the priests. That was what we call first tithe. There is another that is designated as a second tithe, which was to be taken to the place where God said his name and spent on yourself and your family and the fatherless, the stranger and the widow and so on. And that was to be done year by year. This was something that was only done the third year, or the third and the sixth, as other scriptures indicate, out of a seven-year cycle. So two out of seven years, God asks us to take a 10% of our income and set it aside for those who are needy, and he gives the categories, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be filled. You didn't take it to Jerusalem, it was within your gates. You didn't give it to anybody you kept it within your gates and took care of those people in this category. Uh, I, I think the scriptures are quite clear on that when you read all about the different tithes and what was to be done with them and when they were to be kept. That can be easily proved. The thing that gives us problems is we don't like the concept. So when we don't like the concept, or we don't enjoy doing it, we find a way to try to combine it or to spiritualize it away or say that it is not there. We have our means and our methods, do we not? But it is very clear from Scripture, when you put it all together, that that was the way that it was done. So, even though we are to be thankful and have that first fruit basket year by year, we were also to be sure that we kept the third tithe, we call it that, or uh, the widow's tithe or the poor tithe, whatever you want to call it. Then you shall say, before the eternal your God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, and have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. So they didn't give it to the priest, they didn't take it to the feast and eat of it there. They kept it in their gates and did as God said to do with it. It was for those people and those people only. So he says, once we've done that, we're to come before God again. Just as in the basket of first fruits we went before God and acknowledged what he has done for us, that was the reason for first fruits. Now he says, after you have kept the tithe the third year, this is a summary, remember. He gives these laws back in Leviticus. Now he's summarizing here. Once you've done that, you're to come before God again, because this was a special thing you did to help others. That's what its purpose was. So you come before God and you say, I've not forgotten your commandments. Verse 14, I've not eaten thereof in my morning. Uh, you know, it hurts. He says, the hallowed things, the things that you prize, the things that you enjoy, 
that part of your income that you, by law, set aside for others. And you don't eat of it in your morning when things are not going so well for you. You don't touch it because God set it aside for someone else. Neither have I taken away anything thereof for any unclean use. Now, unclean use would be anything other than what God set it aside for, the, the widow, the orphan, and so on, as he said. Anything else would be an unconstitutional or unclean use. <laughs> now, given anything thereof for the dead, but I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. They did have offerings for the dead, pagan stuff. God said, don't use it for that. Use it for the living who are disadvantaged. So once we have done that and taken those things that are dear to us and shared them with others according to his way, not our way, uh, our way might be to give it to United Way or Red Cross or uh, the homeless downtown or whatever. No, God instituted this and said, this is the way I am organizing it for you to do. He didn't just leave it on their hearts, which would forget so easily, uh, but he made it law so that those who had need would be taken care of. And then once we've done that, because it comes at a cost to us, doesn't it? Third tide year is a hard year. God has always shown that he is able to deliver us and we have everything we need in spite of the fact that often it will not work out with pen and paper. But it does. We get extra blessings, things happen, uh, things that we thought we might have to pay for, we don't. I've got hundreds of stories I've heard over the years of people who had blessings during that year that they wouldn't have otherwise that made it possible to get through it. So, with that sacrifice, there can come a blessing. And we are to ask, verse 15, Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. It's easy when God began to prosper them, or would have been easy, for them to get greedy to start enjoying the things that God had given and forget the less fortunate. But God set a law to be sure they were taken care of, and then once that was done, to ask for a blessing. We did that, I think, last year toward the end of the feast. This day, the eternal your God has commanded you to, to these just statutes and judgments, that you shall therefore keep and do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Can't steal from it, can't borrow from it, can't use it for anything but this, and to do it with a heart. God loves a cheerful giver, he says. So we are not to begrudge it, we're not to hate it. We are to work our mind around so that we have the love of God in our heart and mind for those who are underprivileged. And to be sure they are taken care of. That should be our heart and our mind. When somebody does for something who is in that category here, I would hope there would not be complaints or gripes or negative things said about, well, why did so-and-so do such-and-such for so-and-so? Because their heart and their mind were to give and to help. That's why. And there's no room for negativity. It has to be done with our heart and our soul. Christ said we're not to let our left hand know what our right hand does. We're just to help wherever, whenever we can and serve, and it should be a positive thing. You have avowed or avouched the eternal this day to be your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his judge commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. So he lays these things out as reminders to us of who is God. And the Eternal has avouched you this day to be his redeemed or particular people, as he has promised you 
and that you should keep all his commandments. That's New Testament terminology. He calls us there a redeemed people. It says peculiar again in the New Testament, but that isn't according to the best Greek. It means redeemed, set aside, a special people that God has called out of this world, the called out ones. So he did the same thing with ancient Israel on a physical level. Uh, they had to be of Israelite blood to be included. Here we have to be of the Spirit of God to be included, and physical genealogy matters not at all. But it is those who are spiritual Jews that count. Church members, called out once. Verse 19, And to make you high above all nations which he has made in praise and in name and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the eternal your God as he has spoken. So even as he set ancient Israel aside as a physical example of people who were to obey him and be blessed by him, given particular <coughs> blessings above anyone else, also we are a holy nation called of God to be a redeemed, a separate, a particular people, not to be involved with the world, but to be separate and come out of her, my people. And he even has instructed us in the prophecies to leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness, the deserts, and the mountains, if you put all the scriptures together, and to separate ourselves, even within Babylon, but to come out of the cities of Babylon, where this coming holocaust is going to be much greater than it is out in the country. God has made that clear. We are here to be a holy people. He would love for his whole church to be holy, but he says only 10% are going to repent and follow him with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. And it is that 10% he will use as an example to the rest of the world. Just as in Gideon, when they had all those thousands come out, and he separated, and he separated, and he separated, and he separated, until he got it down to 300 to go up against tens of thousands. And they prevailed, because God's hand was in it. So God began separating and dividing and scattering the church when the siege upon the former temple began in earnest in 1986 in January. And he has been sorting and dividing and trying and refining and pushing and chastening and bringing trials, troubles, and tribulation upon the church ever since. We're in almost 2014 now. And this has been going on since 1986. God is sorting still and getting rid of rebels. He's getting rid of negative attitudes. He's getting rid of Laodiceanism. He is trying us and testing us and putting us through the paces to see who will be holy and just and true and serve him with all their heart. And when he makes that determination on a worldwide basis, he's going to bring that faithful 10%. He's going to stir them to come when they see signs and wonders and build the latter temple, both church and a physical temple, and the city of Jerusalem in its original place. And then it will be defiled by the beast power and be under its rule for three and a half years before Christ returns. So that's what is coming. And he calls upon us to be holy and to be prepared. We have our work cut out for us. I'm going to do it. We'll cover chapter 27 pretty quickly. And Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. So he had written it before. He now summarizes it, and he gives them that warning. You do these things which I have told you that came from God. 
And it shall be on the day when you shall pass over Jordan to the land which the eternal your God gives you, that you shall set up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write upon them all the works of this law when you are passed over, that you may go into the land which the eternal your God gives you, a land that flows with milk and honey, as the eternal God of your fathers has promised you. <coughs> I don't know whether the remains of that still exist somewhere around here or not. Perhaps they do. I know that the Decalogue stone down in New Mexico, which I've seen and taken pictures of, has the Ten Commandments all written out in ancient Hebrew. Right there for anyone to see. Right here in this land. But this was closer to the original promised land that he's talking about, the, the uh, River Jordan. So, I have speculations as to where that original river was, and it is near here. Anyway, I don't want to get into that today. So, write the law there. Therefore, verse 4, it shall be when you be gone over Jordan, that you shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and you plaster them with plaster. And there shall you build an altar to the house to the eternal your God, an altar of stones, that you shall not lift up any iron tool upon them. Just natural stones. You shall build the altar of the eternal your God of whole stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings thereon unto the eternal your God. So, to go into the land, they needed to be reminded of the law of God, and take time to pause and build this big altar and plaster it, and then in the plaster write the laws of God. Because if they were to be successful <coughs> in the land they were going into, they had to do it God's way. <coughs> Even as we here have to do it God's way. And they couldn't put an iron tool on them. I think that means that they couldn't be altered. They couldn't be changed. It had to be whole stones representing the whole Word of God. It had to represent a whole heart, a whole mind, not anything divided. Verse 7, And you shall offer peace offerings, and shall eat there, and rejoice before the Eternal your God. So, put the law of God on the rocks, and then take time for a picnic, eat and rejoice and have a party before God, and rejoice in being ready to go into the land and receive that gift from God that he was giving them. <coughs> Let's see. And he reiterates verse 8, And you shall write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Don't obscure it. Don't hide it. Don't change it. Write it very plainly so anyone who comes can read it. Don't go somewhere and write it in real small letters and hope nobody will see it. This was to be proclaimed. This is the way we will live. Verse 9, And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day you will become the people of the Eternal, your God. So they were there to receive the inheritance. We are, in that sense, candidates today, having surrendered through repentance to his ways, and now we are seeking to walk through this wilderness, spiritual wilderness we live in today, and to survive and to thrive, and when Christ returns, to be given the great gift of eternal life and rulership of the earth in the sequence that occurs at that time. <coughs> so the interesting thing he did then next, verse 11, And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So he put these tribes on one side of the valley on a mountain, and these tribes on the other side of the valley on a mountain. 
And one group was to represent blessing, and the other to represent cursing. They acted this out. They didn't just say, some will be blessed and some will be cursed. But it's like a stage play, play almost. Verse 14, when they got them divided like that, six tribes here, six tribes there, the Levites shall speak and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that makes any graven or molted image an abomination to the eternal, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and puts it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, So be it. Then it says, Cursed be he that sets light by his father of his, or his mother, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that removes his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, So be it. So what they did was have the people, the priests would say some of these laws, and then the people would say, I agree, I concur, so be it. Cursed be he that makes the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, so be it. This, I think this would have sent chills up and down your spine to have all those millions of people lined up across the valley from each other, and to have these laws of God read, and then the people would answer in unison, which would have been a very, very loud so be it. So God, Moses is saying, I'm not just going to tell you these things. He says, you get over here, and you get over here, and let's go through this thing one more time <laughs> before you go into the promised land. Verse 19, Cursed be he that perverts the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and widow. And all the people shall say, so be it. Cursed be he that lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that lies with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, So be it. Laws about incest. Cursed be he that lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that smites his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that takes reward to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, So be it. Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, So be it. So he gives a lot of individual laws and statutes, and then he just says, all of them, so be it. Now this thing was done and play-acted with a very great purpose in mind. And right after this comes chapter 28 which delineates the blessings and the cursings. So he had Israel divided. One side of the valley on the mountain is blessing. On the other side is cursing. And then he lays out in the next chapter what will be blessed and what will be cursed. A very, very pivotal chapter in the Bible. So we'll stop before we get into that and Next time I speak, God willing, we'll go into that.